It is certainly a joyous opportunity this morning to come together to offer praise and worship and adoration to the great God of heaven. And certainly I'd like to begin the lesson with a few introductory comments about the appreciation that my family and I feel to the Pippin Church for your prayers in regard to the gospel meeting this past week at Hebron. And certainly as we're thankful for all of that, we're delighted to be back with you today. We, we miss our home church family and we're thankful that things are safely allowed us to come back and be with you. It is along that line. I should also offer a bit of an apology. I've come to appreciate that some who had the intent and even traveled some distance to arrive at the Hebron building were unable to, to find it. And so I certainly apologize for not having a proper set of directions available for, for everyone. And also finally, uh, to express appreciation to Brother Jeff, who uh, delivered not only the lesson last Lord's Day morning, but also did so with such fineness. And the truth of God rung loudly and clearly here at Pippin. And certainly I continue to be so thankful for all of the men at this church who not only have the talent, but are more than eager to use it in the way that God would find pleasing. However, as we come back to a consideration and soon a, a completion of this series of our studies on premillennialism. You might notice on the wall we come today to our twelfth consideration of this series, and all along our emphasis has been on an understanding of what God has said about the end of time, what kinds of things will transpire and the order that shall take place. And we have always tried to contrast the truth which God has set forth to what men have so often asserted. And that being said, perhaps the opening slide will appreciate for us an opportunity to see that again more clearly. For in this series already, we have come to see the need for God's authority, that is to say, to rest fully and completely on what the Scriptures have asserted relative to the end of time. In the second lesson, we looked interestingly at what men have said by way of premillennialism. It is that very frequently heard doctrine and we have time and again seen that it stands in opposition to God's will. In the third lesson, why did the Lord come to this earth the first time? It was to deal with the human problem of sin. And as we looked at that, his rejection was not a surprise. Rather, it was foretold in excruciating detail in the Old Testament. In the fifth lesson, we began to look more interestingly at the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament and how they found their fulfillment in the time of the church, that glorious body of which you and I today continue to be a part. We looked also at the error of both the rapture and tribulation, finding that they not only are not taught, but that the scriptures oppose them. Then we came to see the 70 weeks of Daniel and how it looked directly to the times of the Christ and we see in them the reality of how God was foretelling history before it ever happened. As we come near then the things that followed, we looked in rapid succession at the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, the battle of Armageddon. We also looked at, in fact, the binding of Satan and the thousand-year reign, all of which play a seminal role in premillennialism. That brings us today to Israel and the land promise. Israel and the land promise. I would invite your attention with me over the next few moments this morning as we not only look at this land promise, but we find in it the record of a loving God for people of the long ago and yet a love for you and I today. Because in this picture of the land promise and the nation of Israel, 
we find the bountiful expression of the desire and providence of the God of heaven for individuals like you and like me. It is with regard to those matters. I thought we would at least do well to revisit in brevity, to be sure, some of the things that we're often told about Israel and the land promise. Here are three quick, quick notes. You and I live in a world in which there are very, very many who think that the Jewish nation, those who still hold ties to Judaism, have God's decree of entitlement to the land of Israel. To say that differently, there are those who think that land is such that it belongs to the Jews by virtue of God's declaration and that they thus are entitled to it and will re-inhabit it. In fact, there are many who base a number of their international worldviews on this very subject and on this very thing. You'll notice in that second point, by virtue of those things, there are some who believe that those promises that God made to Abraham will actually find their final and complete fulfillment in the millennium when Jesus is supposed to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem and the land promise, they think, will finally and ultimately be fulfilled then. And then probably one final remark. There is a Zionist movement in our world. It has been a movement now well known for a couple of hundred years at least, but yet it has reached an incredible height of ascendancy. You'll notice the first four letters of the word Zionist is Zion, hearkening our attention back to Mount Zion, that very special place mentioned not only in the Old Testament, in which we find there are these who are looking forward to a time when Zion shall again belong to those of the Jewish persuasion. And in fact, all the world supposedly will be benefited thereby. You might notice I especially draw your attention to the year 1948. You might inquire, what is so special about that year? Perhaps someone here was born that year, but that's not the reason for my mentioning of it this way. It was in 1948, not long following World War II, when in fact the international community made a decision to in fact establish a Jewish state called Israel. And thus, for the first time in centuries, the Jewish nation had a particular country, a state, if you please. And thus, there are many who think that, since that hasn't been that long ago, surely time is soon to end. Because in the Bible, one generation is typically a length of 40 years. Since we aren't too far past that, many think that, in fact, the earth will soon come to its end. You see, the Zionist movement thus has captured the attention and the mind of very many in our world. I would submit to you then, it's no small matter to ask, are the Jews entitled to Israel? Is it still a promise and declaration of God that the land is theirs, and that soon the Muslims and Arabs must be thrust out, and that all of us will be benefited by their existence and ownership of that land? Let us search the Scriptures today and see what God has to say on this subject. Israel and the land promise. We must begin that lesson where the promise was first uttered. Would you revisit with me Genesis, the 12th chapter? Beginning on that occasion in the days long past, it was on that occurrence in time that God called this man Abram. He was, of course, living in Ur of the Chaldees at that time, 
And God merely gave to him a commandment like this. He in fact said, Leave thy father's house and thy kindred, and go into a land that I shall show thee. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. With that kind of command given, isn't it interesting that on that occasion, God did not tell him where explicitly he was going. Rather, he merely affirmed, It's to a land that I will show you. And with regard to that land, Abraham was thus called upon to act in faith, leave behind this place of his residence, and move forward to that place that God would show him. Interestingly, we find that Abraham did precisely as God commanded. And as he moved toward that place, soon to be known as the land of promise, later to be known as Canaan, that land known today to you and me generally perhaps as Palestine, we understand that Abraham did that which God commanded. Later, that nobleman named Nehemiah had reference to this same event when he affirmed the promise and the faith of Abraham as he left and did that which God commanded. We might stop already, though, and pause to notice that in this chapter and those that followed it, there was a reference to some land. Thankfully, their boundaries were also prescribed, so you and I have not to worry nor wonder about the place expressly of God's direction. If you notice in Genesis 13, on the occasion when Abram and Lot parted company because of the strife that had developed between their herdsmen, after that separation, it was God that said to Abram, Look northward and southward, eastward and westward. Your descendants will inhabit this land, and they shall be numbered as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. Two chapters later in Genesis 15, the last four verses of that chapter, God again makes note now of the specific boundaries and those currently dwelling in that place. You and I need not wonder then about what land God had in mind. We perhaps should notice though that not only to Abraham, but as well as to some others, the reiteration of this promise took place. In Genesis 17, not long before Isaac was born, God restated the promise to Abram. We find later in Genesis 26, God stated it to Isaac. In Genesis 28, it was Jacob who was told about the importance of the land and the promise with respect to it. We might even pause at this point and thus notice how it is that the land is so significant and important to those who still hold interest in Judaism. However, our story, we have much more yet to say. You'll notice on that screen, God had stated in Genesis 15, very interestingly, that something was to transpire before the seed of Abraham would inhabit and dwell in that land. There was to be 400 years of affliction and difficulty in which your descendants, Abram, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Notice the land would not be theirs in which they was a stranger, but they would come out to inhabit a land that would become theirs. This land promise thus played an important role in the mindset of all of the early Jews in the Old Testament as they looked forward to the inhabitants of a land where they'd be free to worship God as they wished and to worship Him as God had commanded, not submitting to overlords of other nations like Egypt or other nations like Assyria, but rather that they could appreciate the opportunity to simply serve and do that which God had commanded of them. 
Might we even at this point though pause to notice in terms of Abraham, we might even appreciate that he still looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11 verse 10. For in fact he was a stranger and sojourner in that land. Abraham knew there was a better country somewhere. You and I still should know there's a better country somewhere. In regard to that better country, we shall certainly need to revisit that later in the lesson today. But as we stopped the discussion a moment ago with Jacob, might we ask about his son Joseph? In Genesis 50, verses 24 and following, we find even Joseph gave record of what was to be done with his bones because he knew that his seed, the seed of Abram, was headed to a land that God had promised. And he wanted his bones buried in that place. Was it Joseph a man of faith? Didn't he have trust in that which God had declared? What an example for all of us today. Believing fully, completely, and absolutely in that which God has decreed. There are many humans who think it doesn't make sense and who think that there, by their intellect there's a better way. There has been never, nor will there ever be. This proclamation, the decree of God is truly that which is finally the truth. But after that text of Genesis 15, 24, You'll notice that our story continues onward as we ask further what happened with respect to that land. You'll notice near the bottom of the slide, it came to pass that Abram's seed did sojourn for a while in a land that was not theirs. In fact, it was for well over a few hundred years that they were in this place called Egypt and they did become to be servants there, slaves to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. Just as God had decreed, though, they did come out. As they came forth, following ten plagues rained upon the Egyptians, they proceeded to wander for forty years. But there is a monumental statement in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1. And in that statement we find that the place to which they were headed was the very land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you see, there is a fine thread that has been woven into these opening chapters and books of the Old Testament. There's one continuous, beautiful story. God had promised it to Abram, reiterated it to his son and grandson and great-grandson. And as we see the fulfillment, the children of Israel are marching toward it. It's true, they're beset by disbelief. And they often fail and falter by virtue of God's promise, but he doesn't give up on them. He guides them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And as they march toward that land, often Moses has to, in fact, encourage them, and often God needs to, and that he does. As you notice, one of the last statements on that slide, they finally reach it. As the book of Joshua opens, they cross into that promised land. We can see the joy in their expression, and we can see the enlightenment in their disposition. Through the first 12 chapters of Joshua, they conquer that land. They dispossess, in many instances, those who formerly dwell there, and then they divide it amongst the 12 tribes in the last 12 chapters of Joshua. At this point, we thus have reached a position now of asking, what next? What further should be said about that land? It is with that in mind, we perhaps notice some passages. 
the text that was read earlier this morning in our lesson text is sufficiently significant that I'd like for us to read that again. In Joshua chapter 21, beginning in verse 43, since the land is mentioned again, let us notice what God had to say through the writer Joshua on that occasion. It says, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers, and there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. It is on this occasion that I would invite us to notice specifically the verb tenses that the Holy Spirit used. As I read verse 40, verse number 43 again, let me emphasize the verbs if I might. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. Every verb in that passage is in past tense. God promised by virtue of his oath to give it to them, and the text affirms they possessed it. They dwelt it, and God gave it to them. Thus, the completeness of God's land promise to Abraham was finished by the time of Joshua 21.43. All those on earth today who look yet for some final and lasting fulfillment of the land promise are centuries too late. God fulfilled it fully and completely by the time of the end of the book of Joshua. Those who thus think that that promise made to Abraham is yet to be fulfilled in the millennium, that thousand-year supposed reign, again, are much, much too late. May you and I appreciate the promise God made to Abraham was fulfilled. And as if this statement by Joshua were not sufficient, Nehemiah said the same thing in Nehemiah 9 verse 8. For on that occasion, that inspired writer affirmed that God had given Completed action in the verb by the time of that writing. Now that one takes on an even added significance because we might well remember that just as surely as the children of Israel possessed the land of Canaan by the time Joshua closed, after a few more hundred years they were removed from it in Babylonian captivity. However, the book of Nehemiah was written after the Babylonian captivity. It was written when Nehemiah led a cohort back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah yet affirmed, God had given all the land to Israel that he had promised. The people thus in our day and our time who are longingly waiting and even yearning by perhaps a Zionist movement for a massive return by the Jews to a land that God has promised them, there is no such promise yet to be fulfilled. They are waiting for something that is not going to happen. That's kind of sad, isn't it? When one has placed his trust and his belief and confidence in that which God has never promised, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The famous words of Second Peter 3, 9. In light of those matters... Might we use some of the things on this slide to in fact emphasize another aspect. We have studied on Sunday evenings from the book of Hebrews 
about the fourth chapter of that book in which the Christian rest was highlighted so lovingly and with such expectation. For that Christian rest is heaven itself, and it is to that place that you and I yearn and long. It might be fair then to ask, is there any, quote, holy land on earth today? A parcel of ground that is holier than others in such a position and place that perhaps if a person were to dwell there or visit there or perhaps inhabit a portion of it, that they might be nearer unto God just by virtue of being on that land. Some have perhaps considered that to be the case by virtue of what happened with respect to Moses at the burning bush, for there was holy ground on that occasion, and reaffirmed again in Joshua chapters 4 and 5. But there's an additional thought I would invite you to consider with me. In terms of holy ground, a parcel of land that might be called the holy land, Consider what the Lord stated in John 4, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus, on that occasion, was asked a very good question by a Samaritan woman, the Lord, on that occasion, as he was interacting in conversation with her, he simply affirmed, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor even in Jerusalem shall men worship the Father, as if those were his special places singled out and chosen by God as only special places of land. Notice Jesus said it won't be here in Mount Gerizim where the Gentiles were worshiping, nor would it be even in Jerusalem. Why? Note verses 23 and 24 of the same passage. The Father seeketh such to worship him. What do you mean, Lord? Those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For in John 4.24, he affirmed one final time, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In terms thus of holy acreage, this plot of ground in Putnam County, Tennessee, is just as holy as Jerusalem. In terms of holy acreage, Jackson County, Hebron, wherever it may be, as long as a person worships in truth and in spirit, they are worshiping acceptably, and they are worshiping in a manner pleasing to the God of heaven. We thus need not make annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem if we expect to be right before God. We need not necessarily even visit that place even once in our lifetime. Perhaps one might be impressed by remembering some of the things occurring there, but one can worship here just as well as one can worship there. Those thus who look for a fulfillment of a land promise look again for something of which the gospel speaks nothing. They look for something that the Hebrew writer asserted, the case that there is a far better land to which people should look. One whose builder and whose maker is God. One, in fact, that's described as that better country of Hebrews eleven sixteen. As you come near the bottom of that slide, perhaps two final thoughts. One of them has to be, in fact, this one. When you and I give thought in regard to Galatians 6, verse 16, it is interesting on that occasion that the church is described as the Israel of God. When we thus think about holy acreage or holy placement, the church of our Lord, the church of Jesus Christ, the churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, 16. It is the church that contains those individuals pleasing to God. And thus the highlighted question must always be, 
are you and are I faithful members thereof? For we are the Israel of God, not some holy acreage located a few thousand miles from here. It is you and it is me. How strongly are you and I holding the banner of God's Israel today? Are we striving to be faithful and dedicated and always devoted to the things of God? Or do we allow Satan too much control? Do we allow the devil, in that proverbial statement, give him an inch and he'll take a mile? It is his desire to damn your soul and mine by virtue of leading us aside from God's holy commandment and ordinances. And hence, perhaps, the issue of hope should be the final thing we'll note this morning. In Acts the 28th chapter, there are some who will point to that passage and say, there it is. Paul preached, even following the day of Pentecost, about the reality of the hope of Israel. And I've even put that in in quotation marks and in italics for us to consider. What was it of which Paul spoke when he made reference in Acts 28.20 to the hope of Israel? Without question, many today are hoping for the land. They want to, in fact, remove or force the Muslims to leave, the Arabs and all the others. They want the physical plot of land. Many wars have been fought over that particular parcel of land in Israel. The Six-Day War back in 1967 and 68. The wars of more recent advent in which the United States is supporting that country. What was, what is the hope of Israel? Might we notice some things which it is not? It certainly wasn't land of which Paul referred, for if it were, the Jews would have accepted Paul on that occasion. Had Paul preached the reality of the Old Testament with regard to the land, the Jews would have welcomed him. And yet in the very next verses, Paul said, because you've rejected me, I'm going to the Gentiles. Clearly it wasn't land then to which Paul referred. What else then might it have been? The context leaves us no doubt. The hope of Israel, the very thing for which Israel was fashioned and established, was ultimately the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God founded that nation in the calling of Abram. He guided and superintended her into that land of Canaan where she was walled in by sea and by mountain and by river. She was a special land in which a special people dwelled with a special purpose to bring a special person into this world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And once that land had fulfilled its purpose and mission by virtue of Israel, no longer is that land the holy land per se. All people everywhere have the opportunity to enter into the gloriousness of God's church and to understand the fullness of God's promises to be affirmed therein. Isn't it wonderful then that you and I can open this book and study it in its rightly divided way and appreciate that those are misguided who still wait for the physical land promise to be fulfilled. It was fulfilled a long, long time ago. The hope of Israel embodied fully then in the gospel of the, of the Son of God. Have you been attendant to that gospel? Have you in fact obeyed it initially? Have you had your sins washed away in the very way in which Christ died on Calvary for that to happen for you? Perhaps in the sound of my voice today, there's one or more that though you have heard the truth of the, of the Lord, though you're aware of what happened at Calvary in terms of the Son of God taking your place and shedding His blood for you, to this point, 
you have turned your back upon him. You have never submitted to the gospel call of invitation by way of faithful obedience. Don't give your attention to the land promise, but rather give your attention to the Israel of God today, Galatians 6.16. Questions then. In terms of the gospel plan of salvation, to which I've just alluded, it is in the interest of that conclusion that those matters take us to this point. You need to hear the word of the Lord. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the name of Christ as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. Those things are what's taught in the New Testament that you might become a part of, be added to the church of Jesus Christ. If you have become a member and you have known what that was like and appreciated the blessings therein, but you have allowed yourself to be deceived, beguiled, misled, taken aside, and moved in a direction of eternal doom and ruin, realize that while there's still breath in you, and a mindset to make change, you can make that change. Christ calls you back with love, and he calls you back, however, with justice, because he does assert that if you don't come back to him, he is in that immovable position of truth. He will not move in the position of condoling, condoning the error in your life. He welcomes you back to come to him. You and I must be reconciled to him in the words of Romans chapters 4 and 5. And so today, if we could pray on your behalf for strength, for encouragement, to pray for forgiveness of the sins in your life upon your repentance and confession of them, we'd be delighted to assist in that way. In whatever way we might be of help today, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?